I'm Christian, and welcome to the Gemoir Leadership Podcast, a show where we talk about effective collaboration, influence, and leadership in an increasingly complex world. My interview partner is Dr. Dirk Schlimm. Dirk is an international leadership expert and the author of Influencing Powerful People. The purpose of this podcast is to share ideas and stimulate discussion, and it does not constitute professional advice of any kind. If such advice is needed, the services of a competent professional should be sought. The speakers, hosts, and Gemar International Incorporated are not to be held responsible for any use, misuse, or reuse of the content. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Gemar Leadership Podcast. Today we're talking about board leadership at a time of great change. The pace of environmental, societal, technological, and geopolitical change and disruption keeps accelerating. This change and uncertainty has huge implications for board of directors that provide oversight for organizations both in the for-profit and the non-for-profit sector. To help us talk about what it means to be an effective board and board member during a time of great change, we are thrilled to welcome the renowned governance expert, David Beatty, OBE, as a distinguished guest on our show today. A brief introduction, David is uh, a professor of corporate strategy and governance at the University of Toronto and a co-founding professor of the Black North Academy. As one of the world's most experienced corporate directors and educators, David has served as a director on 40 boards in Canada, the United States, Mexico, Australia, and England, and has been a chairman of nine public and two private companies. David is also the founder of the Canadian Directors Education Program, and he continues to teach in the program and provide oversight. Among David's many honors and achievements, three stand out. In 1994, David was made an officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II at Buckingham Palace for his services to Papua New Guinea. In 2013, David was inducted into the Order of Canada, the nation's highest civilian honor. He is the only recipient to ever be cited for his work on the Canadian corporate governance. And in 2018, David was presented with the Lifetime Achievement Award by the International Corporate Corporate Governance Network, a grouping of global assets managers with more than $50 trillion of assets under management in 47 nations. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks, Christian. A pleasure to be with you. Uh, thanks, David. We're so glad that you're able to join us today. And of course, I should men mention it's not just David and I. We have our regular leadership expert here, Dirk, with us. And Dirk, since I think you and David know each other quite well, why don't I let you take the lead here for this episode? Yeah, uh, thanks, Christian. Yes, we do. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of uh, working with uh, David in his role of chair of the uh, Governance and Nomination Committee at a public company. And I learned a lot from David during that time. And for the past 13 years, crazy how time flies, I've been uh, uh, teaching a session on difficult conversation in the boardroom, which is part of the uh, director's education program that David founded. And I actually was also a participant and a student of David's in the program early on. Uh, that was in DEP6, David. Wow. And I think we're now, yeah, we are now well over. I was in the 1800s, wasn't it, Dirk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. I think we're DEP 100, 3, 4, or 5. Uh, we're opening 105 in Toronto uh, a week Monday, a week tomorrow. Wow. Mm -hmm. wow. Wow. Wonderful. Wonderful. 
No, that that's amazing. And since you two have this almost ancient history, just uh, <laughs> getting there, of course, but uh, since you two have known each other for so long, I'd love to hear this conversation. So Dirk, you have some questions to ask. David will give his answers and then I'll come back at the end just to close. All right, that that sounds sounds really good. So, so David, let's let's jump right in here. And first question for you would be: What are the key responsibilities of a board of directors? Is there a responsibility that you would even classify as the most as the most important one? Sure. I mean, that's that's a simple one. The sacred task I call it. The sacred task of the board is to select the CEO. If you get that wrong, nothing's going to work. In fact, the whole place could blow up. Um, so it's the only job in a way that the board does all by itself. It may take the counsel from the outgoing CEO, but essentially it's the board of directors alone sitting by themselves that will determine the next leader. And that's a sacred task. And I work very hard with the director's education program to instill in potential directors the importance of this job. As I said before, you get this wrong and nothing is going to work. Yeah, the so other functions, now that's that's the top writing one. Then I typically think of the board's jo jobs, duties, and responsibilities in three lines of sight. Hindsight, looking in the rearview mirror, putting out documentation to various shareholders and compliance agencies and regulatory regimes. Oversight, where are we now? Um, and is that where we were supposed to be? And then foresight, where do we want to go when we grow up and who's going to get us there? So three lines of sight um, to me capture, I think, 99 percent of what a board has to do. Yeah. So and, and David, if I can just uh, stay uh, with your, your first intro there, the importance of uh, uh, selecting the CEO. And I think at some level that also extends to senior corporate management. What about getting to know those uh, that C-suite for board of directors, how, how important do you think that would be? Well, I think it's vital. Um, and I don't think boards do much of a job. The work that Stanford's done on talking to directors about the readiness of their C-suite to take on greater responsibilities and then talking to the CEO selected about his or her relationship to the directors, tremendous amount of under communication and under work. Um, I think most HR committees responsible for the development of senior executives and the succession of the CEO um, basically are pretty cursory. They use this sort of an enhanced check the box technology. Do we have a plan for Dirk? Yeah, we do. Well, what is it? Well, you got to spend more time learning about finance. Oh, okay. Next. What about Christian? We got anything? And so, it, yes, they talk about it, but I don't think they work at it or think about it nearly enough. And the evidence gleaned from the S&P 500 by Stanford, for example, and UC Hastings would tend to indicate that that, in fact, is the case. Boards pay only cursory attention to a task and a function that they should be investing huge amounts of time, energy and effort in getting to know the executives personally and getting to work with those executives through some committees or some external consultants on developing them. Uh, because being a CEO is different from any other job in the company. And that's what I send out our would-be directors to. So tell me what's different about being a CEO. Is it a different job or is it like sales and marketing CEOs like being the CFO? And the answer is no, it's a completely different job. 
one they've never had before. And um, I've interviewed a lot of CEOs and they all say unanimously, boy, once you become the chief executive officer of anything, the whole world changes and you can't stop that. So you have to think through what are the attributes we would like to see in a good CEO? What are the things they ought to be able to do? Um, and how well have we prepared them for those functions and tasks? And can we validate that in fact, they're any good at them? So there's a ton of work to be done, and I think it's an area that's significantly underinvested in. Yeah, David, thank you. And uh, you may recall this. Uh, this is where, again, learn, learn so much when uh, uh, at the board where, where you were uh, a committee chair, uh, you performed a CEO performance review, and it was the first one that that particular CEO had ever received. And and you know, I was part of the process and, and learned 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 a lot from this. So so I've seen some of the things that you're talking here about here in uh, in in action. And well, we, we both survived, as I recall, the other day. <laughs> we did, we did. So 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 David, you alluded this that in your uh, long career as a board member, as a board chair, as a board educator you develop those three core perspectives. And, and the first one is that almost all boards are probably very, very busy, uh, but they're not necessarily effective. And in fact, many of them may not be. And so, so can you maybe expand again on this difference between a busy board and an effective board and how you get from being busy to being effective? Well, I think it's a problem not only for boards, but for individuals. It's not very difficult to spend your day doing nothing, but seeming to be doing a ton of things. Um, and one of the one of the insights at, of A.J. Agarwal at the Creative Destruction Lab at the Rotman School with startups is that every startup entrepreneur has a hundred things to do before lunch. And he or she is basically alone to get them all done. So the question is, what are you, how are you going to sort them out? And the first job you do with A.J. is to find somebody who's seen the movie before, get a mentor and or an investor. And then you say, what are the top three things you've got to get done in the next quarter? And if you don't get them done, you're thrown out of the program. In other words, sorting out the, the essential components of building a business from scratch from being busy is hugely different. Um, Bill, what's the gentleman's name who runs Microsoft? Is it Gates? Is that the one? Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Gates has a cottage on a remote lake that he goes to for one week a year, just to get himself sorted out, to get that computer called your brain cleaned and to figure out what his priorities are. John Thompson, when he became the chairman of the TD Bank and John, when he was number two at IBM, when it was turning around in the 1990s, uh, John said, you know, I've never been busier, but I don't really know what we have to do to turn this thing around. So I'm going to take Mondays off. Mondays are mine was his slogan. M-A-N. Mondays are mine. I may interview an executive. I may interview somebody else. I may, I may have a sleep on the couch. But Mondays are mine to try and figure out what is important to get done in this company to save it in the first instance and then to rebuild it again. This is IBM we're talking about. He was the number two guy in there. So I don't think it's very tough to be busy. For boards... I take, I ask directors to take a look at on the back of an envelope is not to two decimals at all. Just say, where did you invest your time in the last board meeting? And you'll notice I try always to say invest your time as opposed to how did you spend your time? Because theoretically in your brain, if you made an investment, you're hoping to get a return. So what is the return on that investment? 
And I asked them, tell me against hindsight, oversight, and foresight, those three components, how you invested your time. And the survey I did, a big survey with the CCGG and McKinsey of 275 directors, something like 80% of their time was invested in oversight and hindsight and 20% in foresight. And when we went back to those 275 directors and asked the next question, not how do you invest your time, but how should you invest your time, they inverted it completely, that we should be thinking about the future of this company a lot more than trying to nitpick the past and the oversight function. So there's a very simple tool for any director on any board of any nature, and that is just divide the, the time you invest into three hindsight, oversight, and foresight, and ask yourself, is that the right, is that the right ratio? Um, coming out of COVID, you know, the distinction between operations and strategy have got really blurred. So bringing a hotel chain back online, the question is sort of how fast do we do it and how do we know if we're going too fast to slow an airline, a railway? So there's been a lot of sort of shunting around what is strategy and what is operations, and in COVID they got blurred. It doesn't bother me. I just want you to understand where it is you invested your time in the last meeting so that in the next meeting, you might have a chance to be more effective and get a higher return on your investment. So busy is easy. We do it naturally. Being effective has to take a, a fair amount of operational and thinking discipline. Yeah, thanks, David. And as our listeners here on the uh, Genoir Leadership Podcast may know, we like to keep things practical. So having that first practical tool here delivered from you on how we evaluate return on director's time invested is a really, really good one. So so thanks for that. And as you said, it's it's immediately implementable uh, yeah. by, 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 by any board. Fantastic. So, so that was a kind of first a core perspective. Second core perspective, uh, that I've, I've seen uh, you talk about and seen in your writing relates to a keyboard challenge in that there is a massive gap in information and knowledge uh, about the company. In fact, I think you have coined the term the information chasm to describe this phenomenon, a, a, a grand canyon of an information gap, so to speak. So can you explain that problem a bit more? And then what can boards do about closing Okay. Yeah, my visual metaphor is the Grand Canyon. There's one side with the management team as the other side over here with the board of directors. And the components of that, when you think about them, it's not too surprising. Management teams invest, what, up to 3,000 hours a year, even more possibly in what they do. The board of directors maybe spends 8 to 10% of that time, maybe 300 hours a year, usually not, but could be. So first, if you believe the world in which we live is changing, how do you catch up and then keep up with an 8% investment? Number two, the, the, the management team have probably been in the industry for, uh, name a number, a lifetime, whereas the director may have experience as a senior executive and therefore wisdom and business judgment, but probably knows almost nothing about the detailed operation of the business. So they're gifted, but they're amateurs. So number one is they invest 8% of the time of the management in fast changing industries, which they all are, is that enough? Number two, they're gifted amateurs. They know very little about the business they're overseeing, although they have great wisdom. And then number three, you hope the management team is busy building the, the business. And as a director, I'm gonna be on two other boards. I'm on one or two philanthropic things I care very deeply about. I have some grandkids who like to go downhill skiing in Gestad and other grandkids who like to go sailing in the Caribbean. 
and I got my own wealth to look after. So I've got a huge portfolio with many tabs in it of things I can do, of which this board is one thing. So management team is focused. I'm all over the place. Management team knows their businesses. I'm an amateur with wisdom and I'm spending 8% of their time. So it's very little doubt to me that most boards of directors don't add value. And that's in fact what the surveys show that management thinks. It was a McKinsey study of, I think, what was it? 250 directors. So let's say that's 25 companies, 250 directors. And they said to those directors, are you highly effective, effective, ineffective, or unsure? Now, not surprisingly, nobody nominated themselves as being an ineffective director, but 10% said they were unsure. So those are the ones I wanted to interview. But basically, 90% of the directors declared themselves to be highly effective or effective. They then went to the 25 CEOs and they asked them the same question. And here I'll give it to Christian. Christian, what would you guess the CEO said about their directors as a percentage who were effective or highly effective? What would you guess? Oh, I feel like the shocking answer would be zero, but maybe let's say 25%. Just <laughs> yeah, you're close. 15%. Okay, wow. The wow. 25 CEO said, yeah, maybe 15% of my board is, adds any value to me. Wow. So, yeah, this, and part of the reason then is you've got this information chasm. Now, last January, a year last January, 2022, McKinsey came out with a book where it had interviewed 76 chief executive officers who they deemed to be top performing by some criteria. It's assumed they did it intelligently. When it came to the bias towards boards as one of the key things that made a difference to the success of these executives, that bias that they said was most effective, that the CEO should be thinking, how do I get the board to help me? So it's my responsibility as a CEO to bring these part-time amateur, gifted amateurs with lots of other stuff in their minds into my world sufficiently that I can get the benefit of their judgment, wisdom, and experience. I think that's a hugely, hugely important mindset to have for the CEOs. How do I get my board to help me as opposed to saying, forget them, you know, I don't care about them. And that was a very interesting and I think very insightful statement to make. So that's the nature of the problem. Then the actual implementation, most executive teams have no idea how to write an effective board paper. Dirk, as I believe, talks to them about having an, an intelligent discussion in a tough environment. But if I've got to make a decision, say, as to whether or not I'm expanding my Hong Kong office and it's got 87 parameters to it, generally speaking, managers do a data dump on boards. Well, that's really not helpful. They've got to structure their information in a way that a board member can read it, read it in a reasonable amount of time, get the benefit of management's thinking so that they can respond as a, as a generic kind of wise person rather than as a detail. Most managers try to teach the board their jobs. It's hopeless. Canada Post, we had a recent director from Canada Post in our director's education program. I asked that person, what's the average number of pages you get as a director of Canada Post for every board meeting? Christian, I'm gonna to turn to you again. What do you guess the answer is? How many pages of material does Canada Post give to its directors? Oh, 
20. Okay, try 1,500. Oh, okay. <laughs> 1,500 pages. So the ability to communicate across that management chasm to try to get the benefit of the judgment and wisdom and experience of the people on the other side is, is, is cruelly crippled by the inability of management to actually synthesize what's in their minds and their brains in their daily lives to a point where somebody who's a drop-in but gifted amateur can have some perspective on it. And that's a problem that's never going to go away. No amount of training is going to help. And usually what happens is you go down a rabbit hole. The managers say the board isn't happy. Well, how do we solve that? Well, we give them more paper. And then the board's even unhappier. So what's the problem with that? Well, we give them more paper. So the number of pages goes from 500 to 750 to 1500 or 2000. And it's just a core data dump. It is not synthesizing the key components of the business decision that are having to be made in a way that that independent director dropping in on the meetings can help with his or her experience. So yeah, Dirk, it's a huge problem. And I think it gives rise to all kinds of board failures. Um, and it's a disaster that continuing, there isn't a management school in North America that teaches executives how to write in a clear, memorable and compelling way, not a single management school. And in my experience at the Rotman School of Management, the only people who come prepared to class are the, are the, are the lawyers because they're taught how to structure an argument to counter somebody else's argument. And how do I do that? Well, there are very clear rules about writing memorandi that are meaningful and not just to a justice of a court or, or, or a jury, but to the board. And it's just never part of a curriculum of an MBA. It's a huge hole. I will say though, David, that I know you have written a paper on this and I've read it and I uh, use it, uh, refer to it frequently. And this idea of bringing uh, somebody into the story, here's what happened and then something's changed yeah. and then outline those those three typically major points. Yeah. I, I think this this is a good, goes beyond boards. The idea of bringing people who are not familiar with an issue. I can see this, you, you're invited to a meeting, they're all kind of technical people. And and you're you're joining this as a management person. Yeah. Somebody needs to bring me uh, into 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 the story. And and so so thanks for uh, well. And the other thing that's non-trivial is it goes back to the medium's a message. Marshall McLuhan, you know, if you get a presenter there, even with a great piece of documentation that's clear, memorable, and compelling, and he or her is stuttering and looking down at the floor. Okay, it, it, it destroys the whole communication of a good argument. The one thing I now teach in every DEP class and every single MBA class is a, is a TED talk called Smile. And it talks about smiling in, in various jurisdictions and how it came and physiologically. The one thing that's really important for managers to get out of that is that a smile in an important meeting, like a board meeting, is taken as a sign of confidence by the listeners. Oh, if Dirk is smiling, he must know what he's talking about. Otherwise, he wouldn't smile. He'd be horrified. But that's isn't that interesting, though? So the manner of delivery is, is equally as important. Now, here, happily, there are lots and lots of coaches in how to, how to get up and give a speech and hold an audience attraction. But this simple notion of smiling. Um, is a vital notion for building confidence in your audience. So I always say smile and leave room for more smiles and then smile again.
Okay, so David, again, love it. We again, we love to be practical here. So let, let's let's uh, point point to that as smiling practical advice. The <laughs> other thing, and I know you like to emphasize, is clear, memorable, uh, compelling. This is this is uh, how we uh, how we want to uh, communicate. Let let me jump to the next uh, question here. And so your third core perspective relates to the central role of the board chair. And again, I've heard you talk about this many times and you you like to compare the uh, chair to a conductor of an orchestra who you know have a um, who have a score without a score actually but they make beautiful music and disharmony or even chaos and and that's all a distinct uh, a possibility and so uh, in my again in my own works I've worked with boards and management teams I've certainly seen both I've seen you know very well aligned situation good conversations or more on the uh, chaos side so what are those key responsibilities of a board chair and, and how do they orchestrate orchestrate the board? Okay, I'll start a little bit further back, Dirk. There's a TED talk by Ben Zander, Z-A-N-D-E-R. He was chair, he was the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic. Hmm. He has an absolutely wonderful 18-minute talk on the impact of classical music. Just magical 18 minutes. Somewhere in there. I think about minute 12, he says, you know, when I turned 40, I was really going through, as most men do, <laughs> a significant <laughs> rethink of my life. And it came to me, I was the only person on the stage that didn't make a sound. 125 gifted people in front of me. I don't make a single sound, each of them does. My job is to pull them together using all of their talents, skills, and gifts into a single unified whole and project it out. And I thought to myself, you know, that is a perfect metaphor for a chair. It's not to dominate the meeting. It's not to be the alpha male. It's not to say, this is how we ought to go. Any objections It's to try to bring the very best out in as many as the 15 people that could be around the boardroom table, both directors and managers pull together in a unified whole. So the chair, runs the meetings and if somebody's if christian as he usually does is taking much too much time to get on with the topic <laughs> we ought to say christian that's very interesting but let's give dirk a chance to speak because i think he has some very insightful views so the regulation of the actual flow of conversation in a board meeting is completely determined by the effectiveness of the chair i have left the chair of a fortune 500 company because of the incompetence of the chair and I went to New York to see him on two separate occasions to, to discuss this problem. Very congenial discussions. Next meeting, nothing different. Went back to New York, another congenial discussion. Next meeting, nothing different. Third time I went to New York, I said, I'm sorry, I'm just going to step down because you cannot be an effective director at all without a competent chair, period. Full stop the end. I make that an absolute um, statement. The other thing that I think is important for the chair um, is to be the best friend, in quotes, of the CEO. Mm. And I don't think that's being drinking buddies with them. I just think it's being always available, always open, always fully transparent. And with Jochen Tilke, who was my CEO at InMed, um, a major corporation that I was the chair of, Jochen and I developed a very, very close relationship, not as I say, based on any kind of socialization, but simply always being there for the other person to listen to their problems, 
to maybe have some advice to give, to get together, to see about something. He phoned me in the middle of the night. We were building a, a, a new mine just outside of Seville in Spain and said, you know, David, we've had a chemical leak. Uh, we've lost two people. And I said, geez, that's awful, Jochen. What do you want me to do? Get on a plane and come over with you to talk to the, what do you want me to do? Like, I'm here, I'm for you. I'm 100% aligned with you. What should we be doing now? And it, without that, uh, you have this chasm just becomes a, a cliff, you know, which you can't get across anymore. If the chair and the CEO really don't see eye to eye, really don't have a close relationship, again, the board is going to end up being totally a policing board um, and, and not adding any value at all. And that's at the end of the day how I distinguish between boards. Three lines of sight droop down to two jobs. One is to be a policeman. And that's to get over the agency problem. And if you're not an owner, you're likely to steal. So the basics of Michael Jensen's insight called the agency theory is that, is that managers will steal from owners, period, full stop, the end. So number one, we're a policing body and we're policing for the regulatory agencies and, and the stock exchange and everybody else. So that's policing. Hopefully with all of our wisdom and experience, we can add value. And that's not done so well. And one of the reasons it's not done so well is because of the documentation problem you mentioned, because of the absenteeism or the time investment I mentioned, along with being an amateur. And, and so it's a very difficult job to add value. And if the chair is not doing his or her job, effectively coordinating meetings, pulling together the agenda, regulating what's going on in the meetings, and then keeping really close to the CEO, you don't have a chance. And, and David, I've I've seen this. I uh, sometimes do work with boards in a, a situation of crisis and try and help help sort that uh, out. And I have one case in particular that I'm thinking about. And and there again, the availability of the chair. If there's a crisis, a chair has to have the time, the yeah. energy, the interest to to yeah. step in. And and you have to be all in in that moment. And I've seen firsthand how important that is during a during a crisis. You have to be you have to be there. Well, that's true of the whole board, actually, isn't it? You may think it's a part-time job, 8% of the time of the management team or your own availability, but if a crisis hits, that 8% can go to 80. <laughs> you better be, you better have the fluidity to, to, to get there. A takeover, yeah. a hostile takeover, um, sacking the CEO, McDonald's or center plate, sacking their CEO, that's a major crisis. How about Bell and Lisa Laflamme and Bell Media? How about the Rogers? I mean, it goes on and on and on. You lose your life at a board when there's a crisis. So yeah. the 8% can migrate pretty quickly to 80. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's right. All right, everyone, sorry to interrupt, but we're going to take a pause here. I hope you've been enjoying Dirk's conversation with David Beatty. This is fascinating and important stuff. And as you could already hear, we're getting so practical. So please join us again in two weeks on the Jamar Leadership Podcast, where we'll continue this amazing interview with David Beatty. Until then, take care.